Praise the Lord, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We have a few as well that are in person, some praise team members and so forth that are going to practice afterwards, but uh, all the rest of you are joining us online, so thank you for, for tuning in online. Uh, tonight, uh, we are going to open with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to give us his strength and uh, touch those that are also in need. We still have many in the body of Christ in need, so we're going to pray for them. But let's do that right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have together tonight in this way. And we just pray that you would give us your wisdom and strength. We pray that you would open our understanding that we might comprehend Scripture. And Lord, I pray for those in need, that you would touch them physically, emotionally, and every other way that they need. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to mention, if you um, have a question as we're going through this, we have a few already, but if you have a question regarding the end times, you can text me, and I will, I've got my phone so I can take a look at that, and uh, Pastor Jeremy and I will answer those questions as we can. Well, Pastor Jeremy, you're teaching this month on the topic of end times, and uh, we had discussed doing something like this, maybe towards the end, but with the roof uh, you know, and everything this week, we went ahead and decided to do it tonight. So um, introduce our topic tonight, and uh, let's go from there. All right. Well, I want to say thank you to Pastor Powell for joining me up here. Um, when we were kind of deciding what we wanted to do, given that most people couldn't be here because of the construction that's going on, I kind of voiced to him that I don't like speaking to an empty room with a camera. I'm not very good at it. I, I feel like I need feedback to be able to think through my thoughts. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this work. But um, like he said, this month we are, we are discussing specifically end time and prophecies. And one of the hard things about taking a topic like end time prophecy and fitting it into a four-sermon series is that prophecy is a lot. There's a lot of information, a lot of things to cover and really work through. And so with that in mind, I thought tonight what we could do is just talk about some prophetic principles. And what I mean by that is, how do you, as a person who maybe hasn't approached uh, understanding prophecy in a while or haven't done it very much, what are some principles that you can use to guide you as you start reading end-time prophecies and to help to make sure that you have a right understanding of that. So that's what we're going to title tonight's lesson, is simply that, Prophetic Principles. Um, I do want to encourage you, if you were not here last week, I would encourage you to go online and watch last week's lesson. Uh, a lot more scripture given in that one uh, pertaining to the rapture and those kind of things. Um, tonight we're going to talk about several topics and we're going to kind of only be able to brush the surface of some of them. But I want to kind of bring to your attention that unfortunately we live in an age, and it's been through, true through most of history, where people even within the church have distorted prophecy, have changed prophecy to make it fit their particular beliefs or their denominational beliefs, um, as opposed to letting prophecy change them. We'll also see that there are some who choose to just ignore prophecy altogether, that it's, it's not necessarily important, important or relevant. But tonight, we, we're going to talk about the purpose of prophecy, and I think that the reason why so many people struggle with getting into prophecy is a misunderstanding of the fundamental purpose of prophecy. Now, let me take a pause right here real quick and make a, a very quick distinction. The term prophecy is actually a big word. It encompasses more than just talking about the return of Christ. Um, the way that I like to think of it is simply this. Prophecy is pleading God's cause to man. In the Old Testament, God gave prophets to prophesy his warning to kings and leaders that they needed to change. Some people, when they read the Old Testament, they are tempted to believe, well, in the Old Testament, God was some mean man who just wanted to smite people anytime he got the chance. But again, a very fundamental misunderstanding of the way God operates. The truth is, is God was very patient and long-suffering in the Old Testament. He gave them pro or a prophet after prophet after prophet to give them the opportunity to change their ways, to give them the opportunity to get on the right path. And prophecy, as we talk about tonight, is the same thing. God wants us in relationship with him. God wants us to be on the right path and to understanding what it is that he is, uh, has planned for his church. Yes, it's so true. And, you know, you mentioned um, how encompassing prophecy is. Um, 
in the Old Testament, of course, there are messianic prophecies pointing to Jesus Christ, his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. There are apocalyptic prophecies pointing to the end time, the millennial reign, and eternity. Um, what is intriguing to me, though, is that uh, many times in the Old Testament, the rabbis would interpret in, the, in writing in the Talmud, or they would um, put information out there that was, that was anti-biblical or uh, eisegetical rather than exegetical. And, for example, Isaiah 55, the first uh, 10 or 11 verses all deal with Jesus Christ coming to redeem, to save, to you know, die on the cross, to rise again. But the last two verses specifically prophesy the end times and, and namely the millennial reign. So you have to be able to de determine between that. And I think the other thing with what we're uh, teaching tonight with these prophetic principles is that uh, there's about 400 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That's a large number. And of course, Christ fulfilled all of them, not, not 399, uh, all of them. Um, but here's an interesting reality. For every one messianic prophecy, there are eight apocalyptic prophecies. That means there's about 3,200 prophecies in the Old and New Testaments that prophesy his second coming, the millennial reign, and all of that. So we need to know. We need to understand how to... Um, understand prophecy, how to teach prophecy, and how to be prepared for the last days. That's a, it's a pretty staggering number to look at. There are eight times more prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ and beyond than just the first coming. And I think one of the reasons that's such an important thing to know is that one of the reasons many people avoid getting into prophecy is they want to focus solely on Calvary. And don't get me wrong, obviously Calvary is important. It's, it's one of the cornerstones to our salvation. But if we recognize the importance of Calvary because of all the Old Testament prophecies that spoke about the first coming of Christ, doesn't it seem that we should be just as concerned with the second coming of Christ when there's eight times as many prophecies concerning that? So... <laughs> If I could sum up what I kind of opened up with in, in one sentence, and we're going to kind of see this play out here, is the purpose of prophecy is to bring the hearer back into alignment with God's word. Right. I want to say that again. The purpose of prophecy yes. is to bring the hearer back into alignment with God's word. It's not to, to bring fear. It's not to bring condemnation. It is actually an extension of God's grace and love and mercy that he's right. reaching for us constantly to put us back on the right path. And when you understand this fundamental truth, you realize that prophecy is not some optional thing. It's not something uh, only the super spiritual read or, or those who have extra time in their day can kind of look at it, right. um, which I don't have any extra time, by the way, just so you know. Re Revelation is, is not some book that deals with God's punishment of the wicked while the saints sit in heaven laughing at those who didn't make it. Now, let me, let me explain that, that sentence there. There are some who teach that the reason that the rest of Revelation is in there, because they believe that we're not here after Revelation chapter 4, right. the rest of Revelation is simply for us to know that God is punishing the earth and we're all sitting in heaven watching them get punished. It doesn't line up scripturally at all. And it isn't consistent with how God operates right. uh, when it comes to the word. Right. So the other thing we need to understand is that prophecy is given to the church so that we will be ready for his return yes. and so we can help others to be ready for his return. I'll say that one more time. Prophecy is given to the church so that we will be ready for his return and so we can help others to be ready for his return. You know, I'm going to interject here and uh, quote or refer to, I think, probably our favorite end times verse and passage as it relates to what you just said. In Daniel 11, chapter 32 and 33, uh, he mentions, he's talking about the Antichrist, he's talking about the second coming and all that's going on in the tribulation. And he says, they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits and shall instruct many in the way. Later in chapter 12, he also mentions that many will be made white and purified and refined. And so I, I believe this is indicative of the fact that 
as we know these principles and as we understand what the Bible teaches, when these things begin to come to pass upon the earth, we'll be able and equipped to teach people, to tell people. And yes, there's going to be a falling away. Yes, there are going to be uh, family members turning on each other and so forth. Scripture tells us that. But it also tells us that there's going to be many purified. So I believe we're going to have a harvest, a revival uh, during this. And it behooves us that we need to be able to give an answer. Peter talked about that in his epistle. We need to be able to give an answer. So that's what we're talking about here tonight is to make sure that we're equipped with the knowledge to give that answer. So why don't you talk to us about our first principle tonight? So the first principle, or principle number one here is this. The return of Christ and the rapture of the church, it's pretty pointed, but hear me out. The return of Christ and the rapture of the church is a salvational and doctrinal issue. I'll, uh, I'll let you open for this one. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, um, I would agree with that in this, uh, based upon these scriptures. In John 8, uh, 24, Jesus says, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He is reaching back to the burning bush where God said to Moses, I am that I am. He is reaching all the way back to in the beginning God, and he is saying, I am God, and you need to believe this or you'll die in your sins. So that encompasses all of, of God's doctrine, um, what we would call the apostles' doctrine, being that we are apostolic, Pentecostal, uh, basing it from the scripture, basing it from the book of Acts, basing it from what took place when Peter preached. And what Peter preached on that day as he began to quote Joel's prophecy in verses 9, 19, and 20 of Acts 2, he clearly and plainly uh, reaches back to Joel's prophecy. Both men are inspired by God to write, and he, and he mentions that the sun is, is going to be darkened, and the, the moon's going to be turned to blood, and, and the sun's not going to shine. The same things Jesus said in Matthew 24, and both Jesus and Peter say this is a post-tribulation event that then the coming of the Lord will take place. So yes, I do believe it is salvational and it is doctrinal. And interestingly, in uh, the book of Joel, it's the only Old Testament book that deals solely with the last days. And there's a distinction to be made between last days and end time that we're not going to really get into tonight. But it's interesting that this Old Testament book is primarily and solely focused on leading up to the return of Christ at his second coming. But I'll uh, take an opportunity, I guess, to unpack what I mean specifically when I made the statement that um, understanding the rapture and, and, and the, the calling up of God's church is a salvational issue. Uh, we know that being born again of the Spirit and the water is central to salvation. We know that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. It's not something that we could earn on good works alone, but that Christ paid that price for us. We understand that, that Peter preached this message in Acts chapter 2 of, of, of the starting point of salvation. But when we say that the only thing we need to understand is salvation according to Acts chapter 2, we actually put ourselves into a very dangerous position let me explain by going to Matthew 24 and 24. Listen to what Jesus says here, Matthew 24, 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now this word elect here is referencing the church. But Paul actually takes this concept and expounds on it a little further. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15 through 19, it says this, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, pause right there because I would dare say every single one who is watching online or sitting in this room has probably heard a message centered on or at least that included this verse in uh, 2 Timothy. We got to study the word. We got to show ourselves approved, yes, rightly yes. divide the word of truth. We all preach about it. Right. But what we often fail to do is look at the context in which this verse is actually written. 16 says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. So here was two individuals who whatever they were teaching was so bad that 
scripture relates it to a canker worm that eats away at them, eats away at their very soul. What did they do that was so bad that Paul had to mention them by name in scripture? Verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It does matter what you believe about the return of Christ and the rapture of his church. It it does, and and I want to interject on that, uh, Pastor Jeremy, and point out just something here that's interesting. Um, These two men said the resurrection already happened. That's speaking of the rapture. That that term resurrection there is not the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, because obviously that was already passed uh, by the time of this writing, probably, you know, 30 to 40 years. They're speaking of what Revelation calls the first resurrection, which is the rapture. What amazes me is it says it overthrew the faith of some. Some people fell for it. I can't imagine still going to church if I believe that God has already come. Right. Well, what hope is there? So they're duped by this, and, and so you're right. It does matter what we believe about what the Bible says, what God says, not about a dogma or a doctrine. And I, I want to interject something here that we don't have time to really uh, go into, but both you and I have testimonies of having our come-to-Jesus moment where we, like Moses, turned aside to see the burning bush. Um, you know, Brother Tony dropped uh, a word in your spirit. You went home and, and locked yourself away for a few days and studied and prayed and came out uh, understanding. And, and I, you know, God was dealing with me, pushed my books away, read nothing but the Bible. And, and so we both had those moments where we said, look, what we have taught and preached and believed uh, has not been fundamentally proven within the Scripture. And, and it, it wasn't, as, as Paul said, it wasn't of men's doing, but rather of God's doing. Well, interesting that you should end with that because it kind of brings us right into principle number two. Mm -hmm. Principle number two simply says this, the Spirit of God will never lead you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. The Spirit of God will never lead you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. This ability or willingness, I guess, to humble yourself and recognize that you're wrong about a topic and to change it so that you are more in alignment with the word is the cornerstone of growing in Christ. No one in this room or who's ever walked this earth outside of Jesus Christ himself knows every aspect of scripture. None of us can truly say that we comprehend everything written in the Bible. We totally get it. We got it all down. We're, We're there. We've arrived. The truth is, is that we are all daily reaching to become more like Christ, which means that we have to recognize daily there are some things within our own lives, within our own thought process that doesn't actually line up with the word. Mm -hmm. And Jesus doesn't hate us for that. No. In fact, he loves us so much. That's why he gave us the scriptures in the first place to change that incorrect thinking, right. to change right. those incorrect beliefs. Right. And this is a very hard thing for some people. And Actually, I'll bring this up here in just a minute, but I'm, I'll let you go first on this, this uh, <laughs> principle, and then I'll come back with a story. I don't know if I'm first or if we're just uh, you know, <laughs> lobbying back and forth. but um, So I, I want to restate the principle here, and that is the Spirit of God will never lead you to do something contrary to the Word of God. Um, again, I believe that because... The word of God and the will of God are interchangeable. Uh, for example, God's not going to tell me uh, if I go to pray tonight after this you know, session, and he's not going to say, um, you're going to be debt-free by going and robbing the bank and paying all your bills. Right. Uh, well, thou shalt not steal. So the word of God trumps right. what I would claim to be the will of God in that uh, case. And I know that's kind of a, a weak analogy, but you can get the point from that. Um, the other thing I want to say is that the Bible says that, that the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, when we receive it, the Comforter, He will lead and guide us into all truth. Here's the problem, though. Not everybody follows. The other day, 
Uh, I was home. I was tired. I had uh, had a long day. And all of a sudden, my lovely dogs started barking up like crazy. And so I realized either somebody's walking by with a dog or somebody's coming to the door. Sure enough, it was somebody coming to the door. I've got the little, you know, doorbell thing. I looked at it, realized it was a salesman, didn't want to talk to him. I just sat in my chair and let the dogs bark until they left. I had the right. I'm the homeowner. Not to respond. Well, when God knocks on our hearts, we have the right to either say, come on in, Jesus, or ignore. So I want to point out something with that and to say this. A principle like this uh, could sound as if we are saying we're right and everybody else is wrong. And I want, I want to bring up something with that. Um, there's a lot of good apostolic Pentecostal people who preach, teach, uh, you know, the, the, the word of the Lord. People get the Holy Spirit. People are baptized in his name. They live holy, righteous, but they believe in pre-trib. And I think part of that is a number of reasons. Some of them don't want to study it. I have talked with people who have said, I don't want to study Revelation. It's going to pan out. They maybe lean towards pre-trib. They, if, if they preach about it, they'll say Jesus is coming at any moment, things like that. But as far as digging into it, as far as taking a month out of their schedule to teach about it, they're never going to do that because some of them are afraid of it. Now, I'm not trying to broad brush or, or make excuses. I'm just giving some reasons why. Um, I also know that at the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century that is, there were a number of people who were, were coming to the Lord through Azusa Street, Topeka, Kansas, and were coming up against uh, the, the mainstream Christianity of the day that believed in uh, baptism in the titles, that believed in a trinity, and they're coming up against that, and they're being persecuted for it. And I think some of them just didn't want to pick another fight. Uh, whether or not they knew uh, about post, pre, whatever. I don't think they, they wanted to pick that fight, so they fought that battle. Uh, I think our generation is fighting this battle. Uh, and the reason I say that is this, uh, Revelation is progressive. In Proverbs, or excuse me, in Psalm 119, 99 and 100, the writer of, of the Psalms there says that he has more understanding than his teachers and that he understands more than his elders. This does not mean he's disparaging the previous generation. I just flew to Maine to honor my bishop because he's pastored for 40 years in one place. I still love that man. By the way, that man's pre-trib, okay? And so it, it's, it's not about dishonoring them. It's about saying that revelation is progressive, okay? And so God is opening new understanding in our day. This is, if you will, our fight to fight. And our sons and daughters may have another one to fight. The last thing I'll say with that to kind of prove that with a, with a statistic is in 2002, before he passed away, the um, former General Superintendent Nathaniel Urshan had indicated that during his years as a minister and as the uh, General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, um, maybe only 10%, if that many, were of post-trib belief. But he said upon his, near his death that it was upwards of 40. Now, that was in 2002, 40%. Um, it's possible that number has increased. It's possible it's decreased. But I would say it's at least still at that number, indicating that more and more people are seeing this, understanding it, coming to some questions and saying, what does the Bible say? What is the Spirit leading? I think that's, uh, you make a couple of really good points there. First, kind of talking about this uh, idea of a progressive revelation. And, and, and I, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but by progressive revelation, we're not saying that God is changing his word or no. that, that God is changing right. his truth, right. but that we are understanding right. an aspect more clearly. Right. And to, to point this out here, um, Jesus had to often talk to his disciples and he would tell them, you don't need to worry about this. Right. This isn't for you to understand right? It wasn't saying to them that this topic is not important, right. rather that the, the rapture of the church was not going to take place during that time frame. But 
Paul had to wrestle with this exact same issue right. often. In not just in what I read there in 2 Timothy, but in, in Corinthians, he ran up against a bunch of people who said, look, our fathers before us have slept, are, are asleep, meaning to be dead, and their fathers before them are dead. So what's the point here? Like, it just right. keeps going on in a cycle. Right. And Paul continually had to come up against this idea uh, of helping people to understand. Right. For me, the way I've seen it play out in my own life many times, and not just on this particular topic, is you read a verse, you get an understanding of what that verse is saying to you in that moment. And then a year later, you're at a very different stage in your walk with God. You're, you've grown deeper, you've faced new battles. And you read that exact same verse that you read before, but now you get a whole new level of understanding. Exactly. It's not that God changed, no. it's not that his word changed, right. it's that my spirit was in a place I to know. receive more of what God was right. trying to tell me. Right. And, and I'm glad you made that distinction that whenever we talk about this, it is, I never intend for it to be an us versus them mentality. No. Because if I ever thought that, then I am going completely counter to what God has called me Amen. and his whole church to do, which is to reach for the lost. Right. But with that being said, we must also never be afraid to stand up for truth. Correct. Just because we know that what we say may run counter to what others believe, it may be somewhat offensive, we are still called to speak the truth in love. Amen. We can't deny the truth or avoid the truth simply because others' feelings might get hurt right. or it may strain right. a relationship. Right. We must always speak the truth in love. So there's, there's a story I, I always like to share when kind of talking about this topic. Um, when I was in Tennessee in the Army, I, I met numerous Mormon missionaries, uh, tons of them. I taught Bible studies to some of them. I let them, you know, I gave them time to speak to me, and they gave me time to speak to them. So when I moved back to Omaha, one day I was at home alone, and these two young ladies uh, came up to my door, and they were from uh, the Mormon faith, and you answered. I answered the door. <laughs> so I don't think they were quite ready for what was about to happen. We started talking. And I was very, you know, polite to them. And um, they asked, do you have a minute so we can talk to you? I said, absolutely. So they start sharing with me their, their little spill. And uh, so I just asked them, I said, if I can interject here, do, do Mormons, do you believe in the Bible? Right. And they said, yes, we believe in the Bible. We also believe in the Book of Mormon. I said, okay, so you believe the Bible is the word of God? They said, yes. And then I brought out this particular point. I won't go through the whole conversation. But I brought at this point talking to this one lady, and I said, Joseph Smith claims to have seen God the Father and Jesus both descend from heaven and speak directly to Joseph Smith. And they said, yep, that's true. I said, okay, well, we have a problem then. Because the Bible says that God is a spirit, Right. And no man has seen God at any time. Exactly. The second problem is that the Bible says that Jesus is the only image of the invisible God. So how did Joseph Smith see a God who was invisible and see more than one image of God when only one exists? Right. That's the reality. So we go back and forth. And, and I knew most of their talking points because it's kind of a learned interaction. And, and as they would share more points with me, I would counter them with scripture. And again, being very respectful, very polite, I never was rude to them. We had a friendly conversation. And I could tell that the one lady I was talking to, she was starting to get a little flustered. I saw her eyes starting to well up a little bit with tears. And after she basically didn't know what else to say, she looked at me and she said, well, I just have to believe that God would not lead me wrong. I believe that, that what I have felt in the spirit is right, so it must be right. So I said, okay, what I understand you're saying is you feel that what you're doing is right, and therefore it must be right because you feel it. And she said, yes. I said, okay, I spent some time overseas in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and we had this little problem over there where certain individuals who belong to the Islamic faith would put on suicide vests. And they would blow themselves up in the middle of, uh, of a crowd. And the reason they did this is they believed, these particular individuals believed that it was their moral and spiritual duty to do this in the name of their God. Yeah. They believed so wholeheartedly that they literally would give up their life to fulfill what they believe. And she looks at me very confused. And I asked her, I said, is what they did right? And she said, no, well, of course not. I said, well, I guess I'm a little confused. You said you know it's the right thing to do because you feel that it's right. 
And yet here is this other individual who also feels that what they're doing is right, and they do it, but you tell them they're wrong. Right. See, the truth is, is that there has to be some permanent, uh, non-changeable source of truth that does not change with our circumstance, that does not change with our emotions, does not change with our beliefs. And of course we know that Jesus said, I am the way, right. the truth, Love. and the life. There is only one reality and one right way. Yeah. We can never allow our feelings of, oh, well, my grandmother believed this her whole life, and therefore I have to believe too because I don't ever believe something bad could happen to her. So are you basing your view of God on emotions right. or on what the Word of God actually says? You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this, this uh, saying by Jesus, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. All of our emotions, our tribulation, um, the different you know, ages of thinking and knowing and all of that will come to an end. But in the end, we will see that God's word was true in the beginning, and it will be true into eternity. I want to tag in on that, uh, Pastor Jeremy, to also, uh, and swing a little bit back around to the progressive revelation element of that with belief. Earlier today when we were talking, you indicated how that, you know, a lot of the disciples struggled with, uh, you know, accepting. And even, even as the church began, there were... Uh, struggles with, you know, now that the Gentiles are coming in, what do we do? Um, Jesus himself was accused of destroying the law and the prophets. And he said, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And Jesus would oftentimes do something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he was not changing the law. Right. I want to be clear on that. He was not changing the law. He was actually in addition to fulfilling it, he was showing what the purpose of the law was meant to be in the first place, a relational aspect. And so um, for a lot of people, you read through the Gospels, many times they would, you know, some would believe and others would go away. Uh, well, we're not going to believe that because they were stuck in that way and I've been this way forever, whatever. So I think it's important that we recognize that just like some of our ancestors fought in the early 1900s against, uh, you know, uh, the, the threefold use of titles for baptism and, and Trinitarian beliefs and were, and were persecuted for it and mistreated for it. And, and uh, some of them, you know, physically uh, were, were beat for it. I hope we don't have to face that, but if we do, we do, uh, you know. But we're now here. On this side, saying, okay, this is, these are things that the Scripture says. Um, and even both of our experiences of God changing our minds to see it uh, didn't happen overnight right. and, and was a, a period of saying, okay, let's, let's look at this. Let's, let's rightly divide the word of truth. Okay, we had opened up for some questions, and we do have a few. So I'm going to uh, read them and ask you our first one here. And uh, then I'll answer a little bit as well. But question number one regarding the end times is, will there be a third temple? So speaking of <laughs> issues that you and I have talked about over the years, back and yeah. forth on, um, this is definitely one of them. And I, I believe, yes, absolutely there will be a third temple. And I'll, I'll tell you why I believe this. Um, first, I'm going to look specifically into Revelation chapter 11. If you look there in the first couple verses of Revelation 11, God specifically tells John, he says, you're going to measure the temple in the inner courtyard, but the outer courtyard, don't measure because it'll be trampled on by foot. Now, some will look at this and say, well, that's, that's simply metaphorical, mm -hmm. that, that God does not honor will not honor sacrifice or worship that's in a third Jewish temple because we know that he has made a temple not built with human hands, that he lives within our heart. The problem with taking this particular approach is looking at something as being allegorical where it expressly seems that it's literal. So the biggest hindrance that people say is, well, God's not going to honor another temple or animal sacrifices in a temple. 
But this is, again, why you must continue to read through the verses to get the full context of what's being said. So in Revelation chapter 11, as we get a little closer to verse 7 here, we start to learn about the two witnesses and how that these two witnesses had power to breathe fire from their mouth, how they had, had authority over everyone, who anyone tried to hurt them that they could kill, that they could cause all manner of plagues and all of this stuff to take place. And interestingly, it says specifically where these two witnesses. Now, if you're going to read the first part as allegorical, well, you have to read the rest of it as allegorical. So were there really two witnesses? Or is that just an allegory that there's actually hundreds of witnesses? Yeah. Right? If you're applying allegory to one and not the others, then you're very inconsistent in your interpretation of what the verse says. But if we take it as a literal approach, how do you overcome this idea that God does not honor sacrifice in a third Jewish temple? I'm glad you asked. Let's pick up in verse 7 and see what it says here. And when they, speaking of the two, pro, our two witnesses here, shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Verse 8, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Oh, okay, well, we're in the great city. What does that mean, right? It, maybe that's just an allegory too. Maybe that's not, there's not literally a great city. It's just wherever. Except you got to read on because it says, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Mm -hmm. Now we have, without a doubt, a definitive geographical location right. of where these two witnesses are standing. And doesn't it make perfect sense that they are standing in the same city where the Antichrist is setting up shop? Yeah. God will often place his people in a place where they're in direct opposition to the enemy. Now, this, this wasn't even in my notes here, but interestingly enough, when you read in Revelation chapter 1 and you, you read the seven churches that are there, if you actually look up on a map where those churches are, they were all centered around Turkey. What does the Bible say about Turkey? That it is the seat of Satan. Right. God does not need permission from the enemy no. to preach and teach anywhere that he wants. Right. And God will often let the enemy know that by putting shop right where the enemy thinks that they're strongest. Absolutely. I think in addition to that, I would answer that question as well by showing how that in the book of Daniel, uh, there is mention of what's called the abomination that makes desolate. There's also, uh, and that's in chapter 11 and 12, um, and it, it appears to be that either something is put into the temple or someone not allowed to go in goes in, or possibly both. So then when you fast forward and you got Matthew 24, Mark 13, both, which basically say the same thing, when you see the abomination of desolation uh, stand in the temple, or, or you know, uh, and, and that which Daniel wrote about, uh, let the reader understand, Jesus is indicating he's reaching back, so he's bringing us forward to that. But then you go to the second Thessalonians, where it talks about the man of sin, the son of perdition, who goes into the temple, proclaiming himself to be God, uh, and, and the Bible says above all gods. In other words, he's not just going to say, uh, I'm the God of the Jews or the Christians. He's going to you know, tell the Muslims he's Allah. He's going to tell the Hindus and uh, all you know, different ones that, that he is their God. Uh, and so to that point, it could be similar to what Constantine did when he amalgamated all the religions into one uh, universal church religion. It's, it's possible that's what the Antichrist will be doing there. Um, so because of that, as you're saying with Rome, uh, Revelation 11, it stands to reason that's going to be a, a, a brick and mortar building. The second thing is the word temple uh, has two meanings. Uh, sometimes the, the meaning is brick and mortar. Um, and, and those are listed, and I don't remember the exact Greek word. But that could mean like the goddess, the temple of the goddess Diana, a brick-and-mortar building. That could mean Herod's temple. Uh, you know, it could mean a number of, of different places, the one true god or false gods. But the other word for temple means inner sanctuary. Um, and it's, it's the symbolic term. And that could be uh, the Holy of Holies or the presence of God. That could be the inner sanctum of, of the goddess Diana's temple, or, or as we know from Scripture, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know Satan, or the Antichrist, is not going to stand in our bodies. 
Um, for one thing, that would be impossible. He's not omnipresent as God is. So it has to be, I believe, a building. Now, a follow-up to that, a lot of people say, well, if there's a third temple, does that mean the Jews have a chance? Yes and no. As Yes in the sense that if they do repent and be baptized and are filled with the Holy Spirit, yes. No, if they think that a some revision of the law will save them because Christ fulfilled the law. And so it's not, I'm not saying it, I believe you're not saying it, that a temple's going to be rebuilt so that the Jews get a second chance. They've had a billion chances, as has the entire world, and it first came to them, Romans 1, 16. It's to the Jew first. So don't believe that it's for that. So. I also uh, think, and we're already crunched for time, I purposely only gave two principles because I knew once we started talking it was going <laughs> to continue to go. So uh, one thing I do want to point out, though, that what's mentioned here in Revelation 11 and 8 kind of gives us an understanding that though there will be a temple built, God does not honor it. Right. And, and, and right. he very plainly points out here in, in calling that great city spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Right. Not two places that no. are spoken of in positive terms when it comes to spirit, spiritual things or within right. scripture. So even the writer here in Revelation 11 is acknowledging that God is not honoring what is going to be taking place there. But we're, where he's mentioning this, so we have a geographical location of where this is happening. Because remember, all of this is for the church to be ready. All of this is so that we are aware of what's happening. That's why he says over and over, let him that hear understand. Let the reader understand. He yes. wants us to know what is going on. You know, you, you, I'm going to keep this going for a minute. Uh, the scripture says that that city is uh, spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Sodom was all about immorality. Egypt was all about idolatry. And so to me, that would speak that at that time, at least, Jerusalem is not about where God centers his will. Right. Certainly people can be saved because people can be saved anywhere. The Bible tells us there were saints in Caesar's household. There was a church in Babylon. So, of course, and obviously in Turkey, you mentioned that with the seven churches. So, but as far as a, being a, a centerpiece um, uh, for the move of God, that won't be so. Okay, second question we have here is, is Jesus coming back in the flesh? So I will admit, we, we kind of peeked at some of the questions before we came up here. And uh, when, he, when he read that to me, I can honestly say I'd never really thought about that before. Like I've never sat Good and question. thought, is Jesus actually coming back in physical flesh? And the reason why I am glad this question got asked is because it allows for me to kind of explain how you should go about answering a question that you really just don't know right off the top of your head. And this is true about all of, all of Scripture, and especially when we're talking about end-time prophecy. Our natural tendency is to want to go to Google. Hey, Google, <laughs> is Jesus coming back in the flesh? Which is going to then lead you to some other... <laughs> site, right? Some other believer's site. And that can be of any background that you don't know. But the truth is where we should go... You mean the internet go... is not always right? <laughs> yeah. Wikipedia is my, my gospel. So the, the, the truth, though, is that we should always look to Scripture right. first. What do we know about scriptural principles that we can use to help us kind of take this question apart? Okay, so what do I know about the Bible that would help me maybe start to piece this together? And you don't have to have it all memorized. You literally open up a search engine and start typing in a Bible app words that will get you to these locations to, to research. So I started looking at, well, when Christ died and rose again, how, did, how was he raised? Right. Well, we know that Christ's resurrection from the dead is going to be a little bit different than ours because we know that we take off the corruptible, put on the incorruptible. But Jesus was perfect. He never had a sinful flesh in the beginning, right? So that kind of makes it unsure. What does that mean then? Well, then we talk about how that Jesus reappeared to his disciples and how they saw him, but that he was able to change his very appearance before them at first. So they didn't even know who they were talking to right. until he decided to reveal themselves. So it, it seems like whatever form that he was in in his post-resurrected state was not just merely flesh on its own. Right. Because in your physical flesh, you kind of hard to do that, right? So you look at all those things, but then, and I'm going to let you quote it because you said it out there, it wasn't me. Then I look at, well, what verses give us any inclination to know how Jesus will be when he returns? With that, I will turn it back over to you. Thank you. Um, good answer, by the way. 
Uh, by the way, just to point out, um, if you don't know the answer and you haven't had time to study it out, be honest and tell somebody. I don't know. I'll get back to you. First uh, John two twenty eight says, And now little children abide in him. Him, of course, is Jesus. When he sh- that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. You're talking about identity and, and Jesus being able to vanish and all this. Verse 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So when Jesus was resurrected, Mary, uh, you know, uh, touched him, which actually means she clanged, uh, you know, was clinging to him. And when he said, don't touch me, he was actually saying, don't cling to me um, because I'm not yet uh, glorified. But even in that state, he's on the road uh, to Emmaus with the disciples. They compel him, constrain him to come in. He eats with them. And as he breaks bread, their hearts burn within them, their eyes open, and all of a sudden, he's gone, vanishes. They're behind locked doors two different times in the Gospels. Behind locked doors, and all of a sudden, bing, here's Jesus just standing there, you know. Um, So even in his, if you will, non-glorified yet body, he hasn't ascended yet, the laws of physics no longer applied to him. Um, So I believe, because we'll see him as he is, that's an indication. And furthermore, and I think you, you alluded or quoted it, when, when they're watching him go up in the clouds, the angel said to him, this same Jesus will come again as you've seen him go. So I don't think we're going to see anything different. I think it'll be a, a bodily, fleshly-like form, except it'll be a glorified form, and we too will have been glorified. The Bible says in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. A lot of people think, you blink your eye and we're in heaven. No, you blink your eye and we're changed. The change is going from etern- uh, uh, temporal to eternal, right. from corruption to incorruption. There. So did you have anything else on that? Or? No, because I really want to get to the next question. <laughs> the, the next question is really good, and I think it's, it's a, a question that if you can understand this question, really wrap your brain around this explanation, I think it will open a lot of the rest of prophecy for you. Okay, question three. Who's your favorite preacher? <laughs> oh, no, sorry. I'm sorry. That would be Jesus is my favorite preacher. Okay. Uh, will there be a coming for the Gentiles and another one for the Jews? So pretty, I, I pretty comfortably can say that almost all of the notion for a pre-trib rapture hangs on this philosophy hangs on this this idea of two separate raptures of of they actually many will believe that that God the father comes for Israel and Jesus comes for the Christians which means if you truly believe the way preacher rapture was originally kind of defined you have to believe in the trinity you can't believe that God is only one because in this logic God, the Father, is married to one bride, and Jesus is apparently married to another bride, which we know is not scriptural and not not, uh, in alignment with everything that was taught, not just in the New Testament, from Old Testament to the very end. Um, But but I want to address a very, very big problem with this particular philosophy. You see, the primary reason that a lot of people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is because they say the term church isn't referenced after Revelation chapter 4. Okay, So so after Revelation chapter 4, they don't see the word church, and therefore that means the church is gone. Um, But if you actually read what Revelation 4 says, you will understand that this is a little bit of flawed logic. First, got to look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Imagine the scene with me for a moment. 
Here is John seeing an image of Jesus in this glorified body. And he describes this awe and wonder that he sees with, with his eyes like fire and his hair uh, white like wool and, and all these descriptors. And uh, he, he actually says that he fell down before him dead because he was so afraid of what was happening before him. And Jesus tells him to stand up because he explains to him that he has something so important to tell John that is going to be written for the church in perpetuity. From the church from his day until the return of Christ, what words he was going to tell him needed to be written down. And in chapter 1, verse 19, God tells John this, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Pay attention to that word, hereafter. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, you read 1, 2, and 3, what you will find is a reference to things of the past, as well as a letter to the churches that are currently in existence. He, he's not explaining church ages. He's not explaining dis, dispensationalism. He's, he's literally writing to the seven churches who, as I told before, are, are near the seat of Satan. He is encouraging them. So that is him writing to what is now. But listen to what happens in chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Nowhere in this passage does he say, Hey, come up here, because this is how the church can be raptured, and then everything I tell you after this, the church is going to be watching. No, God told John exactly how he was going to divide the book up. You're going to write about the past, you're going to write about the present, but the majority of what you're going to write about is the future for you, what's going to be hereafter. So that's what we see there, um, as well as some other things. But I'll turn it over to you first and, and, and give you a chance to go for it. So I just happened to be one day um, uh, reading through the book of Revelation, and uh, I, I'd heard, I've heard that too, that uh, church isn't mentioned after chapter 4. Well, what intrigued me was uh, two or three times it mentioned saints, which is the same Greek word going back into the New Testament that correlates to being the elect, um, the set-apart ones, the called-out ones, the sanctified ones, uh, even, even at times the ecclesia. Uh, some of them correlate to the church itself. But the, the word church is in Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus says, I have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. So it, churches is mentioned in, in the 22nd chapter, so it's, it's certainly after as well. But in addition to that, you have Romans 11, where the uh, theology or, or the understanding of the uh, vine is mentioned. The natural branches, Israel, are broken off because of their sin, because of their rejection of God, and a remnant of them are grafted back in. But Paul is specific as to how, and that's through grace, referencing the new covenant. So they don't just get grafted back in because their, their lottery number was called like the select service, but, but because they repented, were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, they come back in which means the ones that don't rejected him. But then unnatural branches are also grafted in, that's the Gentiles, to the same vine, one vine. That parallelism is then carried forward in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 when he says there's one church made up of Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles used to be alienated, used to be apart from the commonwealth, but now they've brought in Chapter 3, the mystery of these Gentiles is that they are now a part of this one singular body. Colossians, Galatians, both mentioned that there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, barbarian, all of that. There's, we're all one in Christ. So, if there are two different comings, even if, even if a oneness believer just is adamant that somehow... God does it over here for the Gentiles and over here for the Jews, and he's still one. If they can somehow wrap their mind around that, well, how do they wrap their mind around the fact that what God has brought together, they've torn asunder? And quite frankly and bluntly, making God a polygamist, right. marrying two different brides. The other problem I have with that is 
If he comes for the Gentile bride here, which is not a biblical term, and seven years later he comes for the Jews here, how does he let them get saved? Because the Bible says in Revelation 14, 6, that the angel preached the everlasting gospel. Well, everlasting means never-ending. And so if the church is gone, how is the gospel being preached? And if so what a lot of people will say is because somehow through this rebuilt temple, they're finding God and being saved. Well, that's, to me, a slap in the face of Jesus saying, well, your blood was only efficacious until the pre-trib rapture, but not for the last seven years and, and not for the Jews. Well, that don't make any sense because what about all the Jews that got the Holy Ghost? Some scholars put it at about 80,000 in the book of Acts before uh, uh, Cornelius and before the eunuch uh, received the Holy Spirit. So certainly a lot. Uh, we're getting close to time, and we actually just got another text uh, uh, question here as well. And uh, I want to just take these real quick here, uh, if we could. But the, the text question was, why is the tribe of Dan missing in Revelation 7? Uh, I'll also say to that question, you'll also notice that Joseph is mentioned in that listing. When, and Joseph was never a tribe the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. So I think it's Ephraim that's also missing from there as well. Uh, I've got a real long answer, and I don't have time to answer it here, uh, Sister Nancy, so I will, I will answer that to you later. Um, but I've got some reasons why I believe that, that those are mentioned, and, and maybe you do too, so we could talk about that together and send that to her later. Um, because of the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, and uh, Pastor Jeremy, why don't you just take us and... And close us out with a, a final thought on what you have. So I'm going to bring this back around to the verse you alluded to earlier that, that if you ever hear me teach on in time, you're going to hear me say this verse at least once. Same thing for Pastor Powell. I'm going to go back to Daniel chapter 11, 32 and 33. Because I don't ever want someone who hears me talk about end time to believe that because I say that we're going to be here during that tribulation period, that somehow we are in such a chaotic state that God is no longer in control. I think sometimes the reason why people are so afraid when we talk about the tribulation is they view this as such a time of chaos that, that God himself cannot handle it. That God himself is just kind of sitting back there letting it all happen and we're, we're left to fend for ourselves. But, but that's not true. God's power and presence doesn't change because we're in the great tribulation period. And just like God provided for the children in Egypt, do you know that it says that the children of Egypt left, or the children of Israel left Egypt on the wings of a great eagle? Do you know what it is that will protect his people during the Great Tribulation? The wings of a great eagle. God is always true to his word. He will be with us, whether it's in this time, whether it's in tribulation. It doesn't change God. It doesn't change his promises. It doesn't change his power. And most importantly, it doesn't change his presence Amen. with us. So be encouraged. In Daniel 11, 2, 11, 32, and 33, it talks about us being strong and doing exploits. But the people that are strong and the people that do exploits are those that know their God, them that have a relationship with God. And the ones that get to teach others are the ones that understand. The end time will be a great time for the church. Will things be going on? Yes. But our focus always has to be on making heaven and bringing everyone we can along with us. And we're going to see that take place during that time frame. Amen, amen. Well, the rest of this month, Pastor Jeremy is going to be teaching uh, on end times. So the next uh, few Wednesdays, looking forward to this. Uh, if you do have other questions, please feel free to text. Put it on the uh, uh, Facebook or, or um, Instagram page. We'll, we'll get those questions. Pastor Jeremy has access to that too. He can help answer those. Um, we want to we wanna do our best to, to leave you with uh, answered uh, questions and not more questions in the sense of not understanding. So I hope that you've understood these principles tonight and that you can apply them. And so I, I just want to wrap this up on my part by just saying uh, search the scriptures. The Bereans, uh, to me, are, are what we should be like. They search the scriptures daily. And, and I love, if I could put this in the MTP commentary way, you know, Paul gets done preaching. Hey, Paul, great message. We're going to go study for ourselves. 
I don't think it was a rude comment. I don't, in fact, if, when people tell me that and they say, I want to go study this, I'm like, great, good for you. Let me know. Let me know what you find. Let me know what you discover because, you know, you never get to the end of studying Scripture. Right. And so let's be like Bereans. Let's dig in. But let's make sure that our lenses are cleaned. We all do approach the Scripture uh, through a, a lens of apostolic doctrine, and we should. But let's be careful not to approach it with opinion. And let's open it with an open heart. Uh, one of the Bible studies that we teach is called Exploring God's Word. And in the very introductory lesson, uh, the idea is let's explore God's Word free of opinion, free of dogma. What does the Scripture say? Amen. Let's pray together in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to understand your word, to read it. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, those of us that are called to teach it. I pray now that you would take what has been taught, that it would resonate within our hearts and minds, that we would be obedient to it, practicing it, and Lord, that we would be ready to be those who are strong and do exploits and instruct others. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for those of you that came in person. We look forward to seeing you Sunday. We'll have a new roof Sunday. <laughs>